0: KYW Original Podcasts.
1: This is KYW In Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. Around the country, controversial statues are being talked about, debated, and in some cases, moved or torn down. In America, a lot of the focus has been on Confederate statues, but it's not limited to the Civil War. Here in Philadelphia, a lot of focus has been on statues of people like Christopher Columbus or Frank Rizzo. I wanted to find out more about the history of America's statues and monuments, why some of them, like statues of Confederate Army generals, were put up in the first place, and what's been done in the past when people have faced the same issues that we're dealing with right now. Dr. Sarah Beetham studies statues, and she's the chair of liberal arts and an assistant professor of art history at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Over the past month or so, it really feels like America is, we're having kind of a reckoning with statues. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if we can just start from the beginning. You know, why is there a movement to take down some of America's statues right now? And which statues are being targeted?
0: What we're seeing happening right now is the culmination of a movement that has really been burgeoning over maybe the past five years. And it's a movement that has focused largely around Confederate statues in the former Confederate states, but has spread somewhat to other statues that are also in some way implicated in police brutality or in abuses against indigenous Americans and things like that. So to give a little bit of history of at least what's been happening recently, um, is that we just passed the anniversary, um, the five-year anniversary of the shooting that happened at the church in Charleston, where nine parishioners who had met for a prayer meeting were set upon by a white supremacist who gunned them all down. Um, After having been included, um, they invited him to come and join them in their prayer meeting. And shortly after that shooting took place, there were pictures that uh, were circulated of that young man, Dylan Roof, brandishing a Confederate flag in one hand and a pistol in the other. So clearly, he was a white supremacist who was very much drawing from Confederate ideology and Confederate symbolism in making this decision to go and kill African American people. That moment took place at the point that the Black Lives Matter movement was just beginning to really get underway. The Black Lives Matter movement had been kicked off after uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin in Florida. Organizers of the Black Lives Matter movement were basically asking everyone to realize that all of these killings of Black Americans mattered, and that their lives mattered, and that all of these people who were getting off and able to continue to live their lives again after committing these murders had to be brought to justice. So in the wake of the Charleston shooting, Black Lives Matter activists began to point out how there some of the recent things going on with police brutality, with mass incarceration, with the um, injustice against Black Americans in our current climate was really connected with a much longer history um, of the Confederate States of America, of the Civil War, um, and of the much longer and deeper history of slavery. This was an opposition that had always existed there has never been 100% agreement that Confederate monuments should ever have been put up in the first place. I can give you lots of historical examples of um, people speaking out against Confederate monuments at the moments that they were put up. But beginning in 2015, there was a real movement to try to educate people on how these monuments are really tied into what's happening today, and also to convince people to remove them. So that starts in 2015. A number of cities start to get on board with either recontextualizing or removing monuments. In 2017, in May of 2017, one of the first major removals takes place when four Confederate statues are taken down in New Orleans. A statue of Jefferson Davis, a statue of Robert E. Lee, um, a statue of PGT Beauregard, and a fourth statue that was basically celebrating a white supremacist riot that had taken place in the city. That then was a precursor to um, the riots that we saw in Charlottesville in August of 2017 when the city wanted to remove a couple of statues there and where white supremacists sat upon the city. A woman was killed, Heather Heyer, was killed when a white supremacist drove his car into the crowd and that was another moment of reckoning. Since then it's been relatively quiet. Um, There was a lot of activity in the weeks following the Charlottesville incident. A number of monuments came down then but since then Things have been somewhat quiet as what has happened is that a number of former Confederate states, a number of Southern states, have passed laws at the state level protecting Confederate monuments from being removed and making it extremely difficult for any city to take them down legally. But what's happened in the past couple of weeks in the wake of the George Floyd protests is that people have decided that they're not going to listen to those state laws anymore. So we're seeing acts of iconoclasm taking place all over the place that are affecting not just Confederate statues, but also statues of Christopher Columbus and other statues that are seen as being part of this kind of longer American narrative of, of racism. But we're also even seeing some cities deciding that they're going to defy state law willingly pay fines that the state is going to um, to levy against them in order to remove these monuments. Um, there's a lot of examples of that happening in Alabama, for instance. Um, so definitely... In some ways, I'm not surprised by what's happening, um, because I've been following this story for the past five years and have been very involved in it. But that, you know, what we're really seeing happening right now is a real intensification of this existing movement, and one that is very much deciding that they're not going to wait anymore, and that they're not going to just go through, you know, these legal challenges through court years long court cases, which is what's been happening the past couple years that these statutes are going and they're going now. Is what we're seeing.
1: Right, yeah. There's, you know, tons of partitions, you know, even (laughs) citizens taking matters into their own hands. And many of them, (laughs) as you mentioned, are Confederate generals or war figures in towns down south. Can you explain when they were built and why? Are they all from back during the Civil War? Like, who built them?
0: I think to understand the history of Confederate monuments, I think it's important to talk a little about the history of Union monuments, um, of monuments to the United States soldiers first, and what basically happens after the American Civil War is over, which is a moment that's kind of critical for just the development of American sculpture in general. There hadn't been a lot of sculptors um, before this point. There hadn't been a lot of monuments before this point. But this major cataclysmic event takes place and immediately there's a market for American sculptors to get involved, also for foreign sculptors to start making things for American cities. And two different kinds of monuments start getting made right after the war. One of them is monuments recognizing the major military and political leaders. Um, in the North, this would be people like Abraham Lincoln, you know, Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, people like that. But then, really for the first time in world history, there is also this huge movement to recognize the sheer number of rank and file soldiers who were killed in the war as well. The loss of life in the Civil War was really unprecedented. And this was also a moment that kind of people's thoughts about death had really started to shift, and they were were very, very upset about the idea that people had died on the battlefield and no one had, from their family had been there to watch them die um, and to be with them in their last moments. And so a movement began to erect statues of citizen soldiers. These first monuments were often in cemeteries, very rarely were they placed in town squares. They tended to be single figures. They tended to show the soldier um, kind of holding his gun in a very thoughtful manner and often looking down as if he was in mourning and listing the names of all the people from the town that had been killed in the war. And they became kind of places where people could go and put flowers and remember their loved ones who were scattered all over the country um, who had been buried all over the place of union soldiers. Only 50% of them were ever identified positively of who died. And for the Confederate army, it was much worse than that um, because they didn't really didn't keep very good records. Um, And so while this was going on in the North for these first 15 years or so after the war, there wasn't a lot of building of monuments taking place in the former Confederacy. Part of this is because the land was completely devastated by the war. The economy was completely devastated as well. So any funds were going into just trying to rebuild the economy instead of building monuments. And the first memorial activities that took place were trying to find the bodies of Confederate soldiers that had been buried either in mass graves or in smaller burials all over, and trying to repatriate them to Confederate cemeteries. Um, And that was what was taking place over the course of the first 15 years or so. These are also the years of Reconstruction. So there are years when the federal government is very involved in what's going on in the South. And in paying attention to and policing um, the behavior of former members of the Confederate Army and former members of the, the, uh, the Confederate government. As Reconstruction starts to fade and as federal troops begin to pull out, there's also a concerted campaign by white Southerners to repress all of the gains that have been made by Black Americans because of the American Civil War. If you think about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, they end slavery, they give citizenship to all black Americans and they give all black men the right to vote. This is almost like a second American revolution. And lately people have been talking about it as such the amount of change that that's bringing about to society and the kind of freedom that that's granted to black Americans is really incredible. As a result of these amendments, black Americans are starting to get wealth for the first time are starting to build businesses are starting to be elected to government in huge numbers, and this is a really wonderful kind of pretty amazing time. But at the same time that all of this is happening, this is the moment where the Ku Klux Klan is first uh, organized, a moment where all kinds of terrorism starts to take place, where white Southerners are targeting all of these gains by Black Americans, committing lynchings, are burning down buildings, are um, doing everything that they can to destroy people's wealth. When we get to about 1880 or so, Reconstruction is over. The Southern economy has somewhat recovered. At this point, this is when monuments begin to be built. They aren't being built in cemeteries. They're being built in town squares, built in front of the county courthouses, and are representing you know, both soldiers and also people like Robert E. Lee and people like Jefferson Davis. So this isn't something that happens right after the Civil War, but something that happens much later after... This kind of concerted campaign to end these civil rights advances has been pretty much completed.
1: Right here in Philly, there's been a lot of public controversy over other statues the statue of Uh frank rizzo was just recently moved and right now the christopher columbus statue in south philly can you talk Uh about the statues in the city what their significance is and what makes them a target right now
0: So I think one thing to point out, um, and I think that historians will always, you know, make this clear, is that the story of American racism is not a Southern problem. You know, certainly the Confederacy is a really obvious example of a moment when a group of people tried to pretty much destroy the country in order to maintain a slave republic. But it was not the only problem. Absolutely. Northern states were certainly implicated in the slave trade, certainly benefited from the inexpensive cotton that was being largely grown by slaves. And the incredible abuses against black Americans were not something that only took place in, in southern cities. They also took place in major northern cities and all over the north as well. You know, certainly in Philadelphia, there are examples of statues that are very much tied into this history. I think the Frank Rizzo statue is a really good example. You know, he became police commissioner in 1967, um, was mayor from 1972 to 1980. And he was basically known for police brutality, for his incredible racism towards black Americans and black Philadelphians. He openly exploited racial divisions in order to stay in power. He actually told his supporters to vote white when they were voting for him. And, you know, the kind of police brutality that was really kind of central to Frank Rizzo's identity is very much connected to the same sort of history that allows Confederate monuments to stand on the courthouse lawns of pretty much every southern county seat. It's the same system that is trying to tell black Americans that government protections are not for them. And so the statue of Rizzo, it was extremely controversial when it was first put up. There's never been a point when there was consensus in the city that it was supposed to stand there. And, you know, it's not at all surprising that the same movement that is pointing out the connection between today's police brutality and the Confederate past would also be pointing to a much more recent example of someone who really brutalized the people of his own city in order to stay in power. As for the Christopher Columbus statue, I mean, that's also kind of an interesting story. Christopher Columbus is someone who has really become a symbol in some ways for Italian-American identity. A lot of statues of Christopher Columbus are in place because Italian-American communities built them and are often built by Italian or Italian-American sculptors. But the Christopher Columbus statues across the country are now being targeted because of Christopher Columbus's connection to the genocide of Native Americans and really the beginning moments of that genocide, the histories of what he did to people are horrifying. And so, you know, Philadelphia is not the only place where that's happening. There have been statues toppled in Richmond, um, in St. Paul, Minnesota. There's been vandalism all over the place, including Boston and Miami. And a couple of nearby cities that have recently removed Columbus statues include Camden um, and also Wilmington, Delaware as well.
1: One of the main things I think that comes up during this debate about statues is history, right? You always have people saying that they're reminders of the past, and some people, you know you always hear that quote those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it what sure. do you what do you think of that as a reason though to keep statues what right whether it's a confederate soldier or someone like frank rizzo
0: i think the important thing to remember is that statues are not history history is written memory, uh, that, you know, interpretations from, from um, you know, over years and years and years. Statues are, by their nature, unable to present nuanced history. When you think about the physicality of a statue and what goes into making a statue, you're talking about marble and bronze or granite. You're talking about materials that are very large, very heavy, that have to be made by people who have really specialized knowledge. They are expensive. It is expensive and dangerous. It's expe- it's dangerous to pour bronze. It's dangerous to carve granite. So um, the kinds of messages that statues are going to be able to communicate are largely going to be, on the first hand, pretty conservative. Um, sort of the most poss- the most kind of laudable versions of history um, and they're going to glorify the people who they are representing and they are not going to be able to tell you the same thing that a history book is able to tell you and so sure we've got these statues in all of our public spaces but they are not the only way for us to know our history the kind of discussions that we're all having right now the kind of documentation that historians and historical societies are trying to do to make sure that we understand this moment any kind of photographic documentation that's taking place right now in order to remember what happened. These are all really important tools of history. The statues themselves, you know, I am an art historian. Um, If there were no statues, I might be out of a job because I study statues, but we don't need them in order to be able to remember and to interpret and think about this history. And the things that are happening to the statues right now are themselves history, are themselves historic moments. And then another thing to remember as well is, first of all, that public space is finite. We've only got so many town squares. We've only got so many spaces in our cities that can accommodate statuary. And that those spaces should be available to interpret the way that our modern values actually are. Um, Just because something has been there for a really long time doesn't mean it has the right to be there or that it's worthy of being there. Um, And that there may be other ways to use these really valuable public spaces in order to recognize who we are as a society now versus who we were at some other point. And then finally, I think that my own research has been into the long history of the removal, destruction, and alteration of Civil War statues, um, beginning right after the war was over and continuing up into the present day. And what I've learned in my own research is that statues are not things that stay there in one spot and never change. Statues are things that get moved all the time. One example, statues are constantly being hit by cars. Because they were built in cities before the automobile was invented, many of them are in traffic circles or in the middle of the road, and people are constantly hitting them with cars. Um, it has pretty much happened since the automobile was invented, and so as a result, many many statues have been moved out of these dangerous places and put into other into parks or being put into um, onto lawns and things like that in order to prevent them from being hit by cars and prevent people from being hurt by them. That's an example of moving statuary where that no. Nobody objects to. And that is incredibly practical, because our cities have to be able to adapt and change as we as a people adapt and change. And so this isn't something that, you know, is only happening right now, and that is going to, you know, suddenly destroy history. It's something that's just a fact of having public sculpture, which is that sometimes movements need to take place in which the historical landscape is altered.
1: You know, debates over these figures are happening even all over the world right now. But humans, as you said, right, have been making statues for thousands of years, both good uh-huh. and bad. Can you think of other times, maybe even in other countries, where these controversies came up, maybe a specific debate and how they were resolved?
0: I think the history of statues from the beginning of when statues are being made is also the history of destruction of statues. If you go back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, you know, the ancient Greeks used to make statues of athletes who had won major competitions, and then put them up all over their cities. These statues were made out of bronze. And after a certain number of years, after people had time to enjoy a particular statue for a while, they needed the bronze to be able to make something else. And so they would melt those statues down and re- Make them into other things. The ancient Romans had a practice called damnatio memoriae, or damning the memory of someone who had been hated, where particular emperors, Domitian is a good example, Nero is a good example, had damnatio memoriae declared upon them by the Roman Senate, which meant that all of their images had to be destroyed. So, you know, for instance, when I saw the statue going into the into the river in Bristol, England, a couple of weeks ago, the first thing I thought of was all of the statues of Roman emperors that had been tossed into the Tiber River. And not only did they sometimes destroy statues fully by throwing them into the river or things like that. But they also sometimes re-carved statues. So for instance, if you look at lots of busts of the Emperor Vespasian, you will see that they have a very weird kind of flat face. And that's because they are former statues of Nero that have been kind of hacked and recut and turned into statues of Vespasian. And I think that's a really good example of like the idea that statues aren't history, because we haven't forgotten that Nero existed. Um, We still know plenty about his reign and why people hated him. And then we have these really interesting objects that show how Nero was turned into Vespasian over time. So this is a very old history. You know, you have examples from the Renaissance. Um, You have examples from the Protestant Reformation, where Protestants destroyed lots and lots of examples of of Christian religious art. Periods of iconoclasm take place over and over again. You know, in the 20th century, so many major wars ended with periods of iconoclasm. I just saw something on Twitter a couple days ago where someone had... had, uh, Tweeted out a newspaper article from uh, shortly after the after World War II, where workers had found a statue of Hitler that had been thrown into the river, and they pulled it out and they cleaned it off to see what it was, and when they realized it was Hitler, they threw it back in the river again. So, um, this is a practice that has a really long history. Statues are humanoid; they look like people, and so as a result. Um, At moments of really incredible tension, are really difficult moments in society, the statues often end up becoming stand-ins for what people are feeling. And so what we're seeing happening today, this kind of anger that's boiling over and is directed toward the statues, is an impulse in kind of human identity that has a really, really long history.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, tons, tons of political and social movements over the years that all are geared towards statues and what they represent. But do you think that <laughs> these political movements um, that are changing throughout history, all geared towards the statues? I mean, why do people put value in the statues? What kind of always draws them back to these huge figures in town squares
0: i think part of it is that in some cases people continue to espouse the ideology that the the statues represent that you know certainly when it comes to the civil war and the fight between the union and the confederacy that there are scars from that war in the american psyche that have never been healed that there are still many, many people who continue to revere the Confederacy um, that continue to kind of Propagate mythology about the Confederacy and continue to say that, for instance, that the war wasn't really about slavery, which is something that no legitimate historian of the Civil War will ever say to you. And that, you know, the kinds of things that the Confederacy stood for are very much still baked into our country today. So that's part of the problem, um, is that this is a major scar in America that has never been fully healed and one that we're continuing to fight out um, and that probably will continue continue to bubble up at different times until we really try to figure out a way to deal with it. So that's certainly part of it is that the the ideology that the Confederate statues represent is not dead. Um, It's something that is still very much alive. I think that uh, another thing that can tend to happen is that statues become part of our day-to-day lives. You know, if you're living in an urban environment like Philadelphia, when you would go out to go to your, your job in the morning, you would probably walk past all kinds of examples of public sculpture. And you wouldn't necessarily think about them every single day, but they would be kind of part of your consciousness as you're going about your day. And when those monuments or when those pieces of public sculpture are either damaged or altered or suddenly aren't there anymore, that does create a disruption and one that is disturbing and one that you really have to think about and try to figure out how to interpret. And so, you know, I would say part of what's happening is that people are still buying into these statues ideologically. But another one is that that kind of complacency that can come with living with statues in your daily life might make it very hard to be able to really understand how to rethink them when a moment like this comes up.
1: And I guess just as a last question, what do you think should be done with the tons of controversial statues? Um, Should they be replaced? Should they come down? What are your thoughts?
0: I think that there are going to be a lot of different answers to that question. Um, and what I really tend to stress in any that I write or anything that i that I say about these statues is that what happens to them should be the decision of the people who have to live with them every day um that me, as a academic living in New Jersey shouldn't tell somebody in Alabama exactly what they should do with their statue, but the people who are living in that town in Alabama should get together should have meetings, should talk about what makes sense, and should come to some kind of a conclusion that works for their town and that really leads to conversation and healing within that town. Because that's the only way that we're going to get out of this, is for people to be able to actually sit down and talk to each other and understand each other's points of view. So that said, um, some different possibilities might include moving statues to either into storage or onto private land, Uh, Taking Confederate soldier statues and putting them back in the cemeteries, as they may have been originally intended to be, isn't a terrible idea. Some may end up in museum collections, although probably not all that many, because that's another kind of whole controversial issue. The museums do not necessarily want to have lots and lots and lots of statues that were meant to be outdoors in their collections. There may be opportunities for some types of statuary to stay in place and be recontextualized, um, either through additional text or through new monuments or things like that, that has been successful at times. And then, you know, the idea that I always keep coming back to is the idea of kind of putting all of these things in the same place. Um, This is something that you saw a lot at the end of um, the Soviet Union, that there are so many examples of statue parks where former Kamiya statues have been all taken and put together where people can kind of go and see them or where they've kind of had the uh, sort of, they, they don't mean the same thing when they're not on their pedestals and when they're just sitting on the ground. There's a good example of like Memento Park in, in Budapest is an example of one of those. The same thing's been going on in India as well where um, former imperial statuary has been taken and kind of put very haphazardly in these sort of sculpture graveyards where people can go and visit it, but where it doesn't have anywhere near the same kind of impact. So that's another possibility that we could be thinking about as well. But for me, I think the really most important thing is for cities to make these decisions for themselves and to make sure that as they're making these decisions, that people are really reaching out to each other and understanding each other and talking about the things that we should have been talking about the entire time and haven't been doing so. So